There's no problem too big or small, no issue too hot or cold, and no subject these gentlemen won't talk about. Let's head into the lab to see what they're working to figure out today. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grombacher, and we've got an awesome show for you coming up. This week, Centauri and I were joined by Tom Callanan. Tom is a former executive with Gannett and the former editor of the Arizona Republic. We had a great conversation that went from his experience in news media over a 35-year career to the current future state of news organizations to the problems of fake news and how to avoid it. You can find out more about Tom and what he's working on at charitablewords.com, which you'll find in the show notes, and I definitely encourage you to check it out. If you'd like more info on this topic, click contact us in the show notes and we'll get you what you need. Thanks as always for listening. Remember to tell a friend. That's enough about that. Let's go. Let's get into it and get down to it. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grombacher. Joining me as always is Centauri Minor. Hello, folks. And helping us move from awareness to action today is Tom Callanan, the former editor and media executive with Gannett which owns USA Today, the largest subscription newspaper in the United States. Centauri, where do you like to get your fake news predominantly? <laughs> Does it come from a Gummy Post, Hustlers, Link Beef, or Stupid with Two Ds? Are yeah. those actual things? They are. Oh, wow. I did not know. I, did, I tried to stay away from fake news, so I would not be someone to ask that question. To. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, well you know, I, I'm not really... Uh, a big news consumer now because it's kind of like when you retire, it's like I got to get away from this. But uh, my wife is pretty addicted, so I get I get uh, trapped into it sometimes. So I try to take it in doses. And uh, you know, of course, you know, we get the Arizona Republic every day, and then uh, try to read online. I'm not much of a print newspaper reader anymore, but Times and you know Wall Street Journal, and then. TV. I mean, I, I can't handle the networks. Uh, I, I watch them. I'll check in, but I can't sit there and watch for hours. It, it's so repetitive, and I don't need, like, a, a, a panel of six people talking to me. Right. So yeah. I wait for CBS Scott Pelley to come on and watch that. You know, It's called appointment programming. <laughs> it's kind of old-fashioned. But, uh, you know, it, it's all I need. Uh, and then my, my daughter is getting me into podcasts, which is kind of new to me. I mean, it's the first one I've been on, obviously. But uh, she works for BuzzFeed, so she's like oh, wow. right all over this, these trendy things. Oh, for sure. And she, uh, she's been encouraging me to listen to podcasts because you can select what you want. And if you want to stay away from politics, you just don't. You don't go there. Don't consume it. And, you know, a little history here and there is kind of interesting. Um, but that's my news consumption right now. How much do you think of, when you think of the TV news, uh, cable, especially cable networks, how much of that is driven by the fact they have to have 24-hour around-the-clock content? Well, I mean, I don't want to be critical of the networks. I don't you know, have nothing to do with it. I don't run it. I, you know, I, it's easy for me to say I'm out of the business. But uh, obviously, I mean, they have, they've got to keep covering Trump because that's, that's how they fill their time. And that's how they apparently attract an audience, even if the audience doesn't like what they're saying. So that gets pretty tiresome to me. And uh, that's why I try to find alternatives. 
that uh, are a little more balanced with, not political balance, but just you know, what's going on with the environment, what's going on in my community, what's going on uh, sports or something. But I, I can't watch politics all day. I don't know how people can do it. Yeah, but they seem to, I, I guess. If you would, Tom, you, you spent 30 years as, a, uh, as an executive. Tell us a little bit about what you were doing and how you saw the landscape change over that period of time? Well, I mean, you know, if you think back when I, I was post-Watergate, I mean, my generation, we all got in because of Watergate. Hmm. We all were interested in doing something positive. And at that time, uh, let me, the movie stars were in, in the uh, Watergate, uh, all the presidents met. Yeah, most of you had uh, right. Dustin Hoffman, you know. So we were, we were like well thought of back then. Then over the years, um, I think people got a little tired of, of the righteousness of journalists. Hmm. So then we kind of um, had to uh, move a little bit more toward where the audience was thinking. And then I think the newspapers got a little soft. This whole thing, what's going on right now in Washington, it's kind of bringing back those days of good, hard-hitting, investigative yep. journalism. And, um, you know, everything goes in cycles. I started out at, at, at a very small newspaper in Minnesota. I started out, at, it was so small, it's called the Little Falls Daily Transcript. Okay. So uh, what happened was uh, it got purchased by the Gannett Company. So I went from being small-town editor to being part of this chain of which I was the smallest newspaper, the youngest editor, as in my 20s, and just kept plodding away and had to work my way up through, I think, seven states and D.C. Uh, I, I'm the only person you'll ever meet who's lived in both Dakotas. Mm. Uh, <laughs> That's not necessarily a great thing. Are they vastly so different? Uh, I think that, well, Sioux Falls was like much uh, different than Fargo because it was just more urban, you know, uh, a little bit warmer, I guess, a little bit. Uh, but no, they're both very cold prairie states, very conservative. Uh, and then I moved to Michigan, I moved to D.C., I was kind of there right after the startup of USA Today, uh, worked in Florida. Came out here, worked at the Arizona Republic for a couple of years, then I was transferred to Cincinnati where I retired. So now I'm back out here looking for something to do. Got it. So as the editor of a newspaper, um, you're the, the CEO, the general manager, you decide the direction to go. How, how does that work? What do you do on a daily basis? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I had a pretty large staff when I was here in several of the recent newspapers I worked at. I worked in Rochester, New York, and Cincinnati, and here, we had big staffs. So, I mean, personally, I would be in charge of the coverage, but I wouldn't select every story. Or I, I read the important stories. You know, if there's a big story, but um, it wasn't a very hands-on job sometimes. And that's what I kind of enjoy now is I'm, I'm blogging now and writing again nice. instead of management. So. Get back to the basics. I like it. So I hadn't really considered you. You mentioned that uh, 
everything obviously goes through a cycle or cycles, but news, more hard hitting, and then it was shifting towards giving people what they want. Uh, reader, reader survey driven, I guess. Okay. Be, you know, I mean, it was like a lot of when the newspapers started to decline, they all started to go toward the audience surveys. What do they want? What do they want? And uh, not necessarily government and civic lessons and things like that. You know, so I think uh, food and fashion and mm. arts and leisure yeah. that should be part of it, but. Uh, now I think you're seeing it swing back a bit, mm. and people are people seem to be responding. I mean, the circulation seems to be up in some of the larger newspapers. Mm -hmm. Well, it's such a it's such a, a crazy environment for obviously information with so many different sources. They're talking about podcasts and blogs and and fake news and real news and, and everything else. So I think that it's interesting balancing journalistic integrity and reporting on what, as a professional journalist, you think is the right thing to report on versus, as a news organization, having to have subscribers and sell ads, giving people what they want. Right. Striking that balance is tough. Uh, particularly online, you know, the, the phrase they use is just attracting, attracting eyeballs. <clears throat> That's where um, you see a lot of the, you know, I talk about my, my daughter worked for BuzzFeed. And that's all it started out to be, was just kind of this viral videos, things like that. And you know, they're actually getting to be a bit more uh, gravitas now. They were uh, actually showed up with a, a citation in the Pulitzer's this year for a story they had done. Nice. So you know, it, it goes back and forth, but there's there's a lot of what I do now. I've got a nonprofit that uh, helps uh, other nonprofits communicate their message. And I was just meeting with a social bench partners I'm on their marketing committee, and we were talking about how they can like get their message out. And uh, we had the discussion about, you know, there's no, just getting a story in the paper or on a TV station in the morning or something, it's not really good enough anymore. Doesn't because drive action. Yeah, it's it's uh, the media landscape has become so fragmented that I, I have an approach that I call differentiated audience targeting. In other words, if you are a nonprofit doing work for uh, Alzheimer's patients, children with disabilities, early learning, veterans, whatever whatever your cause is, uh, getting a story. In, mass media isn't necessarily the most effective way. You need to find out who other who other people in your community have that same passion. And that is where I call them tribes of common interest. That's where Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and uh, listservs and you know whatever the forum might be is a is a great way to layer your messaging for this very fragmented audience, and some people only care about what they care about. They don't want to page through uh, traditional media. So Tom, can you tell us, uh, in your years as a journalist, kind of what were some of the, um, I'm fascinated to you know, what were some of the stories that were that you were most passionate about, or what was perhaps the most riveting or interesting? Well, you know, you know, it, it, in some ways it was good and bad that I was like a carpet-bagging editor. 
I was a corporate guy, so I mean, I would go into a community for five, six, seven, eight years, three years sometimes, and I'd be, you know, assigned to be in charge. Now, that's not good. You have no institutional knowledge of the community. But uh, it also is good because, you know, I would not read clippings before I went in about past stories. Uh, you know, my saying was, readers don't keep clips. You've got to explain the story to them in context. They may not have seen the previous story. They may not even open up the newspaper. You know, it's run over in the driveway. You know, it's readership happens. So I'd come into a community, and uh, you know, for instance, when I went in, I went into South Dakota, and I just like said, you know, you know, American Indians, they just don't want justice or something. They want Black Hills back, you know, that was the big story then. And it kind of takes an outsider sometimes to see the big story. Mm. Uh, we call it the New York Times uh, level story, where you have a story in your community and you almost don't recognize it, it's so incremental. A little bit happens here, a little bit happens there, and all of a sudden the New York Times is here covering it. It's like, oh, that's a big story. Yep. Nice. Here at the time, uh, it was, I was here, of course, during 9-11. I was here for the Diamondbacks winning the World Series. Uh, the Rodeo, Rodeo Chinesky fire was that year. Mm. So there were a lot of big stories coming up. It was a you know, pretty significant time to be here. How was it covering 9-11 covering from a print standpoint? Well, that was, that was, uh, that was quite a day. I, uh, we did have the advantage of being a couple hours behind the other media, but when I got that call early in the morning, it was just chilling, and I just called going in that day, and I was on a, the executive committee was meeting about uh, uh, what we should do, and I was like, we have to put on an extra, we have time, you know, it was like 10, 11 in the morning, whatever, but if we hustle, we, we already had pictures and stories and that. And uh, not to be judgmental of my management team at the time, but a lot of them were arguing it's very costly to put out an extra, nobody's going to read it, things like that. We have digital, so we'll just put an extra online. I said, no, it's not the same. We've got to have it on the street. Mm. And uh, literally started calling around the country to other editors I knew of major newspapers. And I said, extras are still important, aren't they, for the sake of of the day in history, and it's like, finally, finally got the, 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 the operating committee to, to like, decide, uh, yeah, let's do an extra, and of course that day, it's like, it was, uh, it, it was a keepsake, I guess, for a lot of people, and I remember at the, at the end of the day, I wrote a little column for that paper, and I just said, uh, we, we just kind of went numb all day, we were just putting pictures in, and stories and then uh, exhausted at the end of the day we just all went back to our families and cried that's what you do in that moment so that's quite a day it was certainly quite a day no two ways about that there was a movie that came out um, and it maybe even won an Academy Award spotlight mm -hmm. did you guys see that yeah it's an awesome movie, um, and it obviously just talked about the role of the importance of investigative journalism and how that broke that whole scandal wide open. Um, 
you having had a career and obviously the news, what do you, how do you feel about the role of investigative journalism and what, what do you see for that type of news moving forward? Well, I mean, done right, of course, it's, it's important and it's, uh, it's valid to be investigative and you know, be a watchdog. I, I would say you need to be cautious, though, to not, you know, I used to have a saying to the reporters, take off the trench coat, this is not Watergate. <laughs> uh, the other thing that I, I would watch for is malicious intent. And that means you set out with a premise. Mm. All, I'm not going to name the categories of people, but you know, doctors or real estate people or I don't know, car salesmen, whatever they may be, are this, but are bad. And literally, we would have to watch for the story. We call them story budgets. Here's a pitch for a story. All X category of people do this, so we're going to investigate them. And that is actually, uh, in you know, libel cases, and that, that's discoverable, uh, that you started out with that premise. In other words, malicious intent. So we had a lot of discussions about that. I think if, if you just, I, I'm hearing a lot from you know, Congress and people like right, the, the, you know, this last 24 hours, we're not rushing to judgment, we just need to get the facts, which probably journalists ought to you know, learn that too. Uh, which apparently they're doing, but you do see the pundits on CNN, I talked about that, now jumping toward impeachment and things like that. Well, I don't, you know, just get the facts in. We haven't seen a lot of this yet. Right. And going back to giving people what they want, well, that's pretty much it. If you have half of America that wants to see uh, Republicans win, well, then those folks that work for those stations are going to go find news and evidence or information to, to, to back that up and vice versa. Right. So it's like the tail wagging the dog. I think that right now people want, I think maybe everybody always wants truth, but I think that people really want truth and they want responsibility. Um, so I think that there's a, a, a need and a desire, even though it doesn't seem like it, for good, actual, hard-hitting journalism. Whether or not it'll happen, I, I don't know. So how much of that kind of um, integrity piece is taught in J school? How much of that is talked about to students? Well, uh, and I taught journalism and, uh, at ASU. And that's uh, a lot of the discussion is, here's a story that, you know, recovery. Anonymous store, source, maybe a gruesome photo or a, bad language or whatever it might be, then you turn it to the, the students and say, what would you do with this? And it's amazing uh, the, the wisdom that the students can come up with, but after 30 years, I mean, the, doing the, uh, a job as an editor, you've made mistakes. And it's like, okay, I remember the time I was confronted with that and I made the wrong decision. One of the uh, one of the problems with uh, a news operation is that you're only as strong as your most experienced person, or I wouldn't say weakest link, but you know, a reporter might work all day on a story, file it, and a copy editor with three months experience might write the headline. Mm. 
headline doesn't match the story. And you, you saw that a lot, that there's so many links in a, in a news operation that um, you really need guidance. And s students probably, if they've got good advisors in that, um, I, I think when I, my experience at Arizona State was it's a, a superb a, a journalism program. So I can say here, um, they're getting good guidance. I don't know about every journalism school. I've been to a few. And who's to say? I mean, that's. I would hope that, that everybody that goes into any field goes in with the ideals of wanting to cover things objectively um, and have integrity. But the need for clicks, the need for ad buys and money, um, who knows? I read uh, just exploring with with budgets being cut with a lot of these newspapers, that means that the departments for investigative journalism are, are getting cut. And one of the one of the, the little clips I read was that in a lot of communities all across the United States, there's not any reporters to even be covering City Hall. Mm -hmm. So if there were a whistleblower who was going to come forward and say there's there's bad things going on here, there would be nobody for that person to talk to. Um, and that certainly struck me as as a, a, a pretty dangerous thing um, and that I, I guess maybe will lead us into this whole idea of of fake news and really getting to the bottom of real stories so yeah I've seen it not necessarily uh, here in Phoenix I mean, I'm not keeping up with uh, everything at the, at the newspaper and website I guess but uh, uh, as a reader Pretty impressed of the work they do with. I'm, I'm, I know they've got a lot fewer people because I was here, you know, early 2000s, and I was laying people off as the editor. Now, this is 15, you know, 10, 15 years later. I mean, you can only imagine the staff the reductions they've had because of the uh, change in the business model. They do a pretty good job, but I do know personally, I won't name the newspapers, but I know what they've. One newspaper I was affiliated with had a, a, a kind of a rural area that was exurban. It wasn't like really a suburb, but it was it was uh, it was a hotbed of you know, school board scandals, and you know, I was it, they had the best stories, you know, just crazy people out there, I guess. And they laid off the reporter. They like that's the last person you lay off, right? But it was probably done <laughs> because of market-driven decisions. There's not enough advertising out there or something, but the stories were out there. So I've seen a lot of it. Uh, they've also gone to what they call uh, uh, reader-submitted citizen, citizen journalism, I guess would be the term, where readers will submit their news, you know, small news stories, things like that. And that is a crutch then uh, for not having real reporters available to but, you know, I mean, the news business is an industry that needs to live by the standards of, uh, of, of the markets that drive it. And for a long time, the company I worked for was criticized for uh, being uh, way too uh, conservative on news budgets, things like that, and I saw that. 
But then there are other companies, I won't name any companies here, but there are other companies who are like winning Pulitzers year after year, and they're investing in investigative journalism, and at least one of those companies no longer exists because of sustaining that model. So you, you've got to find a medium someplace. And uh, I, hope, I, I don't want to talk too much about Gannett, my former company, I, I just understand their pain. That's all I can say. So how much do you think this is, or rather with someone who has the 30 years of experience, talk to us a little bit more. I think our listeners want to really know more about this idea of fake news. Like, was it around you know, 30 years ago? How has it become so prolific, and what can folks do to kind of um, combat it? Well, I mean, the, the role of the news organizations, when I was kind of, coming into it, they literally had a term for it. We're the gatekeepers. We're the ones, for right or wrong, because we were certainly not uh, infallible in our judgments, but I think news people would make an attempt to say, is this accurate, is it fair? Well, once they were pushed out of the picture, and certainly on social media or any else, the unfiltered news, then the uh, trolls and spammers and you know, the fake news people just kind of got control. Uh, there's got to be some way, and I know Facebook is, is struggling with this, but in, in the anonymous source business where you see uh, people uh, commenting anonymously online and things like that, I always thought that there ought to be some algorithm that could be developed that could rate the, the trustworthiness of this person's commenting over and over and over again. How much weight? Maybe give them stars mm-hmm. and say, "This is just like a one-star quality opinion," you know. And this one here is a four-star. Almost like you know, that's kind of the, the the Yelp kind of approach that we've gotten used to as a society. And that's where you earn your reputation among the community you're commenting. I'm sure that Facebook or all these other Twitter, whoever whoever's making these decisions, they've got to like face this because uh, they're going to lose their credibility. And when you look at, uh, I talk about uh, how you earn your reputation online. Like if you want to be a tweeter, um, theoretically, you ought to know what you're talking about, and then you would would become, I guess, the term I would use is a note of influence, a person people look to, to get information about the Diamondbacks or, you know, horses or, you know, real estate or whatever you're interested in. You've got people who know what they're talking about and you, you turn to them. Uh, that's theory that I would, you know, I, I'd say that would be the way to trust people, but would it be really interesting to find out or, or to see how they actually do deal with it? And certainly, if you ever go on different message boards, I know that uh, neither here nor there, but people will get ratings. Yeah. And this person's post got one star, five star. So perhaps that is that is yeah. part of the way forward. But Centauri fake news been around forever. Propaganda. Um, the the first known case of it was during the first century. 
Octavius's campaign against Mark Antony, um, but throughout history it's always been propaganda. But like you were saying, the gatekeepers kind of went away because the whole system got flipped on its, you know, kind of upside down, where everybody had a voice. Um, a lot of the fake news comes out of a small city in Macedonia, where apparently there's seven or eight companies that employ hundreds of teenagers that just pump out fake news stories all day long. Well, you know, I, I, I remember in the, in the 80s, I, uh, I was a visiting editor in, in Moscow for a couple of weeks. So I did a little research on the Russian, this was during the time that Glasnost uh, and Perestroika was starting to come into fashion over there, and they're getting a little bit more independence in the press. But there was a term that I wrote a column years and years ago in the 80s about disinformation. It was a strategy. So it's not new. Fake news is not new. It's just that the uh, the dissemination of it has become so widespread now that uh, it used to be that you'd have to like find a publication or a website even that uh, catered to your opinion. I guess you you know look at Fox News if you want to be pejorative about that, or Breitbart and things like that on the right. If you want to say CNN on the left, I don't know. <laughs> Whatever you would consider to be your source of information, you've always kind of had that choice too. But now you can't even, you can't even go on Facebook. You know, I mean, you can't, I don't know, they ought to develop a Facebook that has no politics on it, I think. You know, so. mm. and we'll, no, no, we'll talk about no politics and no kittens. And I, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it there would be no Facebook then. The, uh, it was distribution and cost, audience and trust, and then law and regulations. Those were the, the barriers to just pushing out nonsense and, and fake news. Um, you think about before the internet, how, how, how are you going to distribute your crappy news stories, right? Yeah. It costs a lot. Um, and who, who would take your crappy news story for real, right? Um, and then some of it would be illegal, but now all that's gone. So uh, I, in, in, in preparation of our conversation today, I started to just do research about these terms, fake news, and it strikes me that we're almost, and I may be, I might have found some conspiratorial type stuff, but it, it, it got concerning enough that, that I wanted to bounce it off you. It seems like it's almost a perfect storm where there are fewer and fewer legitimate reporters going on or out there tracking down stories. You have a term, which is now fake news, and you have President Trump who may have coined the term when he told a CNN reporter during a press briefing, your fake news. Um, and I'm not, I, I didn't vote for President Trump. I did not vote for, for, for candidate Clinton. Um, so I'm not trying to, to make any political stuff here, but this is the guy that, that almost spearheaded the Obama birther campaign. He said that Rafael Cruz, Ted Cruz's dad, was part of the conspiracy to kill JFK and everything else. And now he is threatening to eliminate press briefings for the, uh, the, the White House and maybe bring them down to, uh, to once every two weeks, and he would be the only one to do it. And his reasoning was that um, he was hoping to have more accuracy. Hmm. So I find the whole trying to be somewhat <laughs> troubling. Not to defend him, but if I, if I was him, I'd do that too. I mean, I mean they can't handle the press briefings. They, their, their story changes so much that they can't keep up with it. So either he quits, well, I'm not going to get into politics, but either 
he gets his story right with his team, or maybe the only way they can solve their problem is to follow that strategy. Just let him have it. I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I would, you know, when, uh, when I was an editor, I would see cases where reporters, and I'm not trying to draw a parallel here, because these would be much smaller stories, maybe a small town politician or something. Or maybe it's a person who's not educated. Just say something so outrageous. Uh, maybe even speak in a dialect that is substandard or something. And the reporters rush to, like, I would call it opportun opportunistic reporting. You're just setting that person up to look bad. So, I mean, paraphrase it, whatever you do. But there's plenty of people out there who say things just to get in the news. And, you know, I, I, I was the editor, so I, I could make rules that, that people might not agree with. But I would have a, a class of stories that I, you know, ongoing stories, and I say, I want to see that story first. And uh, sometimes it would just be, just, yeah, this is an outrageous thing that was said, but it's not advancing the issue. It's just this person trying to get attention. Um, I, I can't control the, the media, but I mean, do they have to cover every tweet? I mean, at, at some point, which ones are the important ones? But, you know, there's no way that's going to happen. So the days of uh, decision-making today are a lot different than I had 24 hours on the side. I could hold the story for an afternoon while we debated it, you know, on the print. You found more yeah. facts. You know. We can change your mind back and forth. Now you just got to publish it. So if, if you're uh, one of our listeners, what can you do to, to kind of figure out and discern and get through it all? Because you're right, there's there's constant, if you go on Facebook right now, or just the CNN um, uh, front page, it's like 10 stories about Trump. Where do you even begin, or how do you how do you curate that in your own mind so that you don't go nuts, but you're still well-informed? Well, I can only speak for myself. I mean, I, I have gotten to limit. You know, my wife has a, she's just retiring. She was a lawyer, so she wasn't in the news business. So it's like, you know, I'm sure she doesn't want to sit around and read legal briefs all day. She's Probably not. Uh, so I'm just kind of tired of it. And that's kind of why I got into the nonprofit world instead of the news world. I had a, a title as a professor of journalism when I retired. And I said, I don't want the term journalism in, in my title anymore. I, I, I don't want to be objective. I, I want to be subjective. I want to be an activist. When you're a journalist, theoretically, you can't get involved in things. So I did start this uh, nonprofit that, I, that I'm working with. So I could get involved. Well, today I'm kind of getting dragged in to talk about news, but I mean, <laughs> I don't for really, I'm sorry. The only reason I'm an expert in news is I've worked for almost every failed strategy in news they've had. I mean, uh, and I've been out for a while. So I'm just a consumer now. And I can talk about the old days and that, but uh, I don't have any answers for the day, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's a lot. I think, think that both sides need to, to up their game a little bit. Um, 
Well, in, in, in this brave new world, and I don't mean to make you keep your uh, your media hat on for, and, and, and maybe we'll just say that, let's let's dispatch with the term journalism and just, if we were to design a, a media company moving forward, what, it would have blogs, it would have, it would have podcasts, it would have, what would it look like? Well, it, you know, there's, there's two ways to look at it. One would be, Early days of uh, newspapers going digital, um, they made a couple mistakes. One was that they uh, they didn't value their their content, so they just gave it away. And you're seeing newspapers or websites in general now, Wall Street Journal is it comes to mind, that they're charging mm-hmm. for it. And newspapers are kind of catching up to that. The other one was uh, they would just replicate the newspaper online. Mm. Like, well, you know, here you go. This is yesterday's news updated you know, after the paper comes on. And there was a lot of uh, pushback about the time I was here and a few other places um, in the uh, late 90s where reporters would not want to post their story before it was in the real paper. And I think that's kind of gone away now, but it, is it too late? I mean, if you look at any significant newspaper now, uh, if your franchise was that you covered the Chicago Cubs better than any other source, you could charge then for your Cubs coverage to Cubs fans, right? I'm intentionally picking on Chicago. Not that I know anything about it, I just didn't want to like, get too close to home anyways. But in the meantime, I mean, guess who developed rich, dynamic websites? Cubs, Diamondbacks, Cardinals, you know, any any franchise that you can find. And I found uh, at one point that our sports writers, in Cincinnati at least, that's my uh, my most recent experience, um, we're getting scooped by the writers for the Bengals, the Reds. By the actual teams, wow. Yeah, yeah. the actual teams were reporting, and I, I don't imagine it was a lot of critical news, but there's certainly you know, breaking news stories in that, about whatever it may be. So that they, okay, now you're going to come back and say, I'm going to charge for the content for the, the coverage of this team. I'm already getting it, free, yeah. for the team. From the team. And that's kind of happened in so many areas, you know, you can name food, fashion, whatever you want to say. I mean, um, remember the food sections and papers and that? You cut out recipes and that? Well, you know, that other ways to get recipes have come up. Yeah, like Pinterest. No kidding. I use it every day. <laughs> Something pops in my mind. It's like, I want Thai noodles. I just search for it. That pops into Satara's mind three or four times a day. <laughs> At least, yeah. or insert bacon-related thing here. I, I, I see. This is the good thing about social media. I don't know if I like like it or not. I know that you said bacon twice today. You're you're a good <laughs> follower, Tom. I know that. This is what I deal with. <laughs> so, Tom, I know I wanted to uh, to pivot a bit to give you a little bit of time to talk about um, what was the impetus of charitable charitable words and how do you see that 
really enriching at least the, the, the nonprofit community both locally and nationally. We're going to need to give a little background on what that is. Yeah. Well, um, you know, like I said, I was, a, I was a journalist, and then I, when I retired, I dabbled in teaching journalism, things like that. And I just, I just kind of woke up and I said, I've been on the outside looking in for 30 years, 35 years. I want to not be outside looking in. I want to get inside making a difference. But I didn't have any skills. I didn't have any hobbies. I, you know, my my interest was basically going to work every day. So I had to study up on uh, the nonprofit sector, and I joined Social Venture Partners, right, which uh, is a group of uh, uh, engaged philanthropists. There's like I can't remember you know, thirty chapters, something like that, around the country, <clears throat> including Phoenix. And I joined in Cincinnati to to learn about the nonprofit sector. And I started volunteering as a tutor in literacy and you know, speaking some other languages and started to get involved in, in the community. And I kind of uh, went on a crash course of it. And uh, I would go to all the conventions all over the country and I, I met Dan Pallotta who wrote the book Uncharitable. And he, he, he talks about the unfairness of the nonprofit fundraising model, where the first thing that funders will ask is what's the overhead factor? If you have 80% going to programs, 20% going to overhead, that's okay. If you have 60% going to programs, 40% to overhead, we're not gonna give you any money. And he explained it to, to, to me at least, you know, he's a friend of mine now, on his advisory board, Defense Council, but when I first uh, got introduced to this discussion, I didn't know anything. And the best uh, anecdote that I, I've read in this book and I've heard him talk about it is you have two soup kitchens, soup kitchen A and B. A provides literacy training, job skills training, certainly literacy, uh, and soup. And, uh, but they spend 60% of programs and 40% on overhead maybe these programs. Soup Kitchen B has an 80% uh, going into programs, 20% uh, overhead, as in marketing or advertising or you know, whatever, staff. But they're not doing any enrichment training for the kids coming in homeless people, whatever, and their soup is rancid, but they get the funding. So I kind of got on a mission there to really understand the, the nonprofit model, and kind of because of that, what I, what I realized was nonprofits, especially small ones, are at a disadvantage because in order to do, if you are feeding 100 people, that's okay, but if thousand needed, how do you scale up your, your work? Well, you need to get the word out about yourself. But here's a, you know, a non-profit uh, executive director making 30000 a year with maybe a, a free intern or something. They're not going to be able to do a lot of marketing and things like that. And that's not fair. Because uh, if I was going to start a coffee shop, 
I'm sure I'd be rewarded for taking a risk being an entrepreneur. Maybe somebody, not me, I'd probably not be a very good business person, but if a person wanted to invest in a for-profit business, people they don't look at it the same way about the risk factor and things like that. It's like, like it's a good idea, let's take a chance. So I, I kind of coupled that with my uh, uh, my personal experience with three millennials, and I noticed about this generation, they call them the purpose generation. They want purposeful jobs, or things like that. So you're getting nonprofits, largest uh, uh, employer, most fastest growing uh, employment uh, in the in the U.S. economy today. You know, 100 is now. I forgot what it was. I did some research a few years ago. But they they really are, people want to get into the nonprofit work. They can't make any money. You know, if they're going to business school, they're not going to work for a nonprofit. They're going to work for a, a corporation. It doesn't mean anything to them. And then the, the students, my kids, you know, I'm fortunate that I was able to help them with college, but students are uh, graduating from college with $25,000 in debt. Okay, nonprofits need the help, students need the jobs of experience, and they need to get paid. Let's put together a program that's called the Charitable Word Scholars, where I get students to help the nonprofits with communication. So we've done like videos and things like that. And, uh, you know, if a nonprofit wants to do a, a, some website development, a video, you go to a vendor who might do that for you. It might be ten thousand dollars. I don't know. Well, a student would be very happy to do an internship for a couple thousand, and they do good work. So we started matching them up, and we saw some pretty good outcomes. Where, uh, you know, for instance, a, a nonprofit might have a, a annual event coming up. They need a brochure. They need uh, some social media things like that, and they might get an intern in for a couple thousand dollars, and they'll raise sixty thousand dollars at their event. Now, I don't have $60,000 to give somebody, but this nonprofit I run can invest in that student and then bring in, I have a, a network of volunteer advisors. These are my cronies from when I was in the business that you literally might get a, a videographer's student working with an Emmy award-winning videographer, you know, just as pro bono. So we had a lot of success back in Ohio and uh, we're, we're making a difference. We're getting a good, good reputation. Uh, had about 70 students go through in the last couple of years. And then I moved here. So I, I got to start all over again, which is fine. You know, I've, I've got a network, you guys, you know, and uh, I'll, uh, I'm, I'm, I've joined SVP out here. And I'm starting to connect with people. And let's see what we can do. So if you're, uh, just for the folks that are listening locally, if you're a nonprofit, how do they get a hold of you? Uh, it's there's a website charitable words one word charitablewords.com so I'm not looking for a lot of work right now I've got a couple nonprofits that I'm working with uh, I can't scale up too quickly so I, I don't know how much I can advertise it but uh, it's just me I don't have I'm, I'm that nonprofit store I don't have a staff uh, I don't have resources I do have a little bit of money I was uh, 
at one point I was writing grants, I was making uh, proposals constantly, I was getting uh, funded for projects and that, but I'm retired. And it's like, <laughs> it, it was hard to keep up with it. it all I'm doing is sitting here doing the books, you know? I want to be teaching kids to read. You know? That's what I, I want to, that reminds me of my old job, you know? Right. Management. So I, I'm not trying to scale up too much, just keep busy. Excellent. Well, I think <clears throat> in the uh, interest of, of getting correct information, circling back just to close the loop and, and wrap up our conversation, I would think the confirmation bias is probably one of the things that folks should be really aware of because we all suffer from it, being that if I already have, we talked about a journalist going into a story with that in mind already. If I think that uh, used car salesmen are, are, are bad, then I'm probably going to find information to back that up. And if I'm all about Hillary Clinton, then I'm probably going to find websites or whatever or groups that are supportive of Hillary Clinton. Yeah, it, it does. You know, I... I'm not in the news meetings at CNN and all these 24-hour news sites. But I do wonder, um, is there anybody that is just taking a deep breath and saying, <laughs> you know, maybe Hillary didn't mean that, or maybe Trump didn't mean to tweet that, and let's take a deep breath and, and try to relax a bit before we jump all over this story. Mm -hmm. I don't see anybody doing there's probably not an incentive for them to do so, other than uh, integrity, which is not enough incentive. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I don't long to be back in the news business, but it would be interesting. I, I know I, I've worked so many places that, and like I was saying, I was a carpet banker. I'd be coming in as the outsider, and I'd meet someone, you know, and uh, a governor or something, and in the newsroom, Say so which one, but here were all these you know, copy editors right outside of college being cynical and making fun of the governor. And then I meet the governor, and the governor might you know, have some quirks in that, but pretty smart person. But he, he had become a caricature mm -hmm. to these basically inexperienced journalists. And like, what that just it's almost like black humor in the newsroom where there's all these jokes and that. It's bias. And that's where the grown-ups, I guess, the older older editors in the room would have to take a deep breath and just try to slow that kind of cynicism down. And it came from both sides. I mean, it, it, you, everybody thinks the news media is conservative or not conservative or liberal. Or, I don't know. I saw it from both sides. There's some very conservative young people well, I worked at the Arizona Republic, you know, I mean, that was, that was pretty conservative, wasn't it? Yep. Right. So everybody just take a breath. Relax a little bit. It's good advice. Take a step back, man. Relax. Excellent. Um, well, as our time is drawn to a close, Centauri, what have we forgot to talk about? Um, I guess my one question to you would be, if I had to, uh, we've been asking this a lot of folks, um, no, you're not in the, from a consumer standpoint, what are three things that you think people should read or what would you recommend them to read? Well, like I said, I think uh, I'm starting to explore podcasts. Mm -hmm. 
and there's good ones and not so good ones in that. Uh, I recommend watching, and this is old fashioned, but I recommend watching the traditional legacy news where there's one anchor. I, I was on the Cronkite board when I was when I taught at ASU. I've met Walter Cronkite now. <laughs> that's that's my that's my kind of generational thing. But I feel it. I feel like a legitimate, traditional news organization that doesn't have the panel of talking heads is probably a good place to start. Mm. So, um, you know, I, I I literally sit at home and I can't handle cable news anymore. I'll turn to PBS, take a lot of shows in that. I'll watch the Weather Channel sometimes just to get away from it. You know? <laughs> When you, like I need when a break. You, when you move here, from the place, <laughs> you move here from the place that I lived in. You like to watch the Weather Channel. That's, uh, that's a good point. It's a good point. That is exciting here. Okay. Yeah. If you get super bored, you can always go to Gummy Post, Hustlers, Link Beef, or Stupid with two D's for your fake news. Those are actual sites. Okay, gotcha. I don't think so. <laughs> I'm not doing it. Very well. <laughs> Well, Tom, I appreciate having you on. What else would you like to get off your chest? Well, I mean, it, it, uh, it's, it's great to be here, I guess. That's getting off my chest. I mean, you know, when you're retired, you really miss going to, like, some place where people are engaged and people are, like, uh, talking to each other and that. You know, spend the day with you know, two dogs and go to the pool and that. You kind of miss that. And then I go to the gym and that, but then all they do is sit around and talk politics. So I just get out. And that's, that's, that's kind of what uh, I'm seeking here as a relative newcomer back to Arizona, is find some networks that are doing important work. And that's where Social Venture Partners came in and, and the work we're doing with some other nonprofits now. Excellent. Well, again, we certainly appreciate your time and your insights, and we'll have all the information about the work that you are doing in the notes of the show. Um, if you like what you heard, please subscribe to the show, leave a review, and tell a friend. And as always, keep questioning because the struggle is real.